Hello, and welcome to the next installment of Let's Get It Straight. Today, we're going to review OSHA's education and training requirements, and you can evaluate whether your department is on the right track or not. So let's begin by listing the requirements put forth by OSHA in the Bloodborne Pathogen Regulation, and then added to that later came tuberculosis and other diseases. OSHA's requirements begin with at the time of new hire. Before individuals run calls, they're to receive new hire training. That's to be followed by annual update training. And we'll discuss what's to be included in that in just a little bit. But there might be a need for additional training when there are changes in tasks and procedures. For example, COVID-19. We needed to do additional training. The next requirement that material content and language must be appropriate for all persons in the training program. I think it's really important to note that OSHA requires that the training must offer the opportunity for interactive questions and answers with an instructor. Second, the instructor shall be knowledgeable in the subject matter. Well, let's stop there. The subject matter is not the OSHA regulation. The subject matter encompasses infection control and the diseases. The second part, be able to relate it to a specific workplace setting. So someone from a hospital might come and do training for your department, but if they aren't familiar with what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, they may not meet this requirement. And thirdly, the name and qualifications of the instructor must be on the training record. Now, most departments don't have that on their standardized training sign-in sheet. So either modify the one you have or have a separate sign-in sheet for this training. Now I mentioned annual update training. That needs to include exposure data for your department, just numbers, because department members have a right to know what's going on. Your flu vaccine participation rate is also helpful. And refresher training to cover topics listed in the standard to the extent needed. Let's stop there. This is addressing compliance monitoring. Were deficiencies picked up on compliance monitoring that need to be readdressed in annual training. This is how you do re-education, retraining. The second part of the statement is you must emphasize new information or procedures that are taking uh, place for your department. New information on the diseases is key. 
your TB risk assessment for your department. And here's one key element. Training must be offered 365 days or less from the previous year's training. So watching your scheduling is important. With regard to training methods, OSHA states the sole use of video or film without the opportunity for a discussion period is not acceptable. A generic computer pro, uh, program, even if it's interactive, is not considered appropriate unless there is site-specific, department-specific supplements and a person is available for Q&A. Now, we do have some leeway here that they're very clear that they want trainees to have direct access to a qualified trainer when the training is taking place. We can use a telephone hotline. We can use email. However, there's one catch. If someone has a question and they're calling in or emailing, someone must be available, a knowledgeable someone, to answer their question at the time they ask it. So it can't be leave a voicemail and when we check voicemail, we'll get back to you, or when I check email, I'll get back to you. That would not be acceptable. We are required to have a training record. And this one is a little bit different, as I alluded to a few moments ago because we have to list the qualifications of the instructor. And there should be an outline or summary of the material that was presented in the training. I usually attach a copy of my handouts to the sign-in sheet. We also have to have space for the attendee's name and job title. So who is considered a qualified instructor? Someone who has work experience in the subject matter area. Now remember that the subject matter involves the diseases and infection control. Number two, that individual has a degree in the subject matter area. And number three, a certificate of additional specialized training to prepare them to teach this material. So you don't have to meet all three, but one of the three would be what would qualify under OSHA inspector's guide um, as a qualified individual. So we need to make sure that whoever is doing the training meets one of these criteria. So why is it important? OSHA has the uh, ability uh, to interview up to 75% of your workforce in private and ask them any question related to the training or to the exposure control plan. 
So think about your current training and if your department members would answer questions appropriately. So we have some problems in Fire EMS uh, with regard to having assurance that we have a qualified trainer. The first thing is rotating of positions. So someone is going out of training, someone new is coming in, uh, they may have not had preparation for this training. They're going to pick up what the person who was there before them used without verifying the information or updating the information. Another issue is that management may not attend the training. Hmm, why is that a bullet on this slide? So in my survey, I asked about the frequency of rotation of the training officer position. As you can see here in the darker gray area, 67% st stated it could be greater than once a year. How would that be helpful to consistency and continuity in your training? Now, I mentioned that employers may not attend training. And why would that be important? Well, OSHA will interview management. Are they familiar with the CDC guidelines, which of course OSHA is enforcing and they may ask management questions. They may ask to see training certificates for verification. So management is not totally left out of this. So does OSHA apply to you? Now these, this is a listing of state plan states. In other words, states that have accepted the um, responsibility of developing their own uh, plan to comply with OSHA. Now, state plans can go above the federal OSHA, but they cannot go below. So if your state is not listed here, does that mean you do not have to comply? Well, look at the states reflected on this slide. Georgia, Kansas, Missouri, New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Texas, and West Virginia. These states have uh, passed legislation requiring following the OSHA regulation on um, protection of healthcare workers. So you may be covered and not realize it, but here are the documents that you can reference. So what about training? What is required to be covered in the training? The first part is epidemiology. The occurrence of disease within a given geographic area or group. So national case numbers 
and case numbers for the state in which you work are meaningful. What is going on where you work? Now, how each disease is transmitted and signs of symptoms. Look at this listing. It says hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, syphilis, oh, and the catch-all, others if appropriate. Now, if you only look at the OSHA bloodborne pathogen regulation, it just talks about hepatitis B and HIV. So where did this come from? It came from the Compliance Directive, a companion document to the OSHA regulation. And in that document, you will find what I am presenting in this segment of Let's Get It Straight. So it is broader than just what's in the regulation. We're also to address what constitutes an exposure and to include key components of your exposure control plan and where members of the department can access that plan. The plan is to serve as a reference document for members of the department. We are also to cover personal protective equipment, what we have selected, when it is to be used, task-based use for the equipment, proper use and handling and or disposal if they're disposable or how to launder if they are able to be laundered. Your vaccination program, well, this started out only to address hepatitis B vaccine, and there has been a real expansion of what vaccines are to be offered since this document was first published in 1991. We are to talk about safety and efficacy of the vaccines, and they are to be free to employees. A key thing is post-exposure notification and follow-up. Uh, so step-by-step, step, we should lay out in our plan, if a member has an exposure, what they are to do. Step-by-step. Step. Under engineering controls and work practices, uh, SHARPS risk assessment. This is your exposure data. Were there any SHARPS injuries reported um, for the previous year? And what needle safe devices are being used? By the way, hands-on training with those devices is required, as well as in your plan stating how employees have input to the selection and evaluation of the devices. That's how we make sure that what we have brought in is working. The work restriction guidelines from the CDC are to be included in training, in your exposure control plan and department policy, clearly laying out when personnel can and cannot be at work because of their health status. 
we need to bring people up to date on all the new post-exposure issues with regard to HIV, and it's all great news. Latex allergy and nitrile allergy insensitivity should be presented, as well as hand hygiene. Now, excuse my typo here on um, allotted time for new hire training on infection control. This was also part of my survey. And as you can see, uh, there's a lot to be done here in having adequate time to cover all the diseases that now need to be covered. Three to four hours is the time that needs to be spent to present this information. For annual refresher training, um, boy, uh, do you do it, yes or no? Well, one problem with my question, <laughs> it was too broad because a lot of people, yes, say, yes, we do annual update training. But the problem is they're just rehashing the same training year after year. It's not updated. So I'm going to be resending out my survey across the country and see if things have improved since 2019. Compliance monitoring is a forgotten element which is required to be in your plan. And this is where we find the requirement. And that's in the OSHA General Duty Clause on Duties Part B. Part A are the employer responsibilities and Part B address the employee responsibilities, that each of us has a responsibility for their own safety. And so this says you are to follow rules, regulations, and or orders pursuant to this act that are applicable to your actions and conduct. How do we know if you're complying? We do compliance monitoring. Now, OSHA then implemented uh, a responsibility to address tuberculosis. Uh, the TB guidelines came out, the latest version, in December of 2005, but OSHA began its enforcement of the CDC TB guidelines, an older version, back in 1993 and they have issued a compliance directive. Now, in May of 2019, they published an update. A lot of it wasn't an update, but the key point is that there is to be no annual TB testing, none. We are to test new hires, but we don't test again unless a documented exposure occurs. Now, in 2011, the Ryan White Law disease list that medical facilities must notify your department about was updated. And that was a good thing. It added a lot of key diseases that medical facilities must assist you with. 
So for bloodborne, hepatitis C was added, as you know from the compliance directive. Hemorrhagic fevers have always been there. Airborne was expanded beyond just tuberculosis to include chickenpox and measles. And then they clarified those that are spread by droplet, not airborne. And key is meningitis. It's droplet transmission, not airborne. And then in 2020, COVID-19 was added in a separate document. So if you look at the listing, mumps, pertussis, whooping cough, rubella, German measles are back. And so it's important that we um, are given notice by the medical facilities if a crew that transported a patient may have uh, posed a risk to that transporting crew. So I asked a question, did training cover airborne diseases like chickenpox, TB, and measles? Remember these were added, chickenpox and measles, in 2011. And as you can see from the result, uh, there's work to be done in education on measles and chickenpox. And what about droplet diseases? Uh, 61% of departments who responded stated that they do cover meningitis in their training and flu, uh, but mumps and some of the others need to be added as well. Now, a key point that is often missed when we talk about OSHA is that OSHA is enforcing the CDC guidelines, and they are doing that using the general duty clause. So a lot of uh, people say, oh, well, those are just guidelines. We don't have to follow them. Well, the fact that OSHA is enforcing them changes everything they become a requirement. You also are to have an exposure control plan, and it is to cover each of these elements. So this is the beginning. You start with who's at risk and who is not, and go over the other elements that we spoke of. Also to include your cleaning and disinfection routines for vehicles and equipment, medical waste disposal, post-exposure management, how it's to be handled step-by-step step in your department, record keeping, how that is kept confidential, and of course, don't forget compliance monitoring. So to have a compliant plan, each of these needs to be addressed specific to your department. So what about a plan? I asked about that. Is it brought up in new hire training? And 75% said yes, but 25% said no. And that would be an OSHA violation. 
What about introducing the role of the designated officer and what they do with regard to exposure management and follow-up? Only 44% said that is included. That is the whole key to a good program is the role of the designated infection control officer in assisting with ensuring that an exposed department member gets proper care and counseling. What about training on cleaning for vehicles and equipment? And 58% responded that that was indeed included, but 42% did not include that. Not being in training equals an OSHA violation. What about training being department specific? In this question, 61% of responders said yes, it is included and 39% said no. That would absolutely be an OSHA violation. So what about definition of exposure? 77% said it is included and 23% said it is not. That is key to bloodborne pathogen and airborne and droplet transmission training is to know what constitutes an exposure and what is not an exposure. Questions would be asked by inspectors with regard to this. And what about clarifying medical waste regulations? Um, only 21% said they include that and 79% said they did not. Now, this is really important because every state has different regulations, but for the majority, sharps are medical waste, and for the most part, anything else needs to be uh, drippable, pourable, or squeezable with blood to be considered medical waste. So very little of what is used day to day would be considered medical waste. And that has a real cost impact for the department if you're contracting your own um, medical waste handler. So is your department meeting OSHA's training requirements? And if your answer is yes, then you know clearly that that is risk reduction and cost reduction. So that brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. I've gone over my usual allotted time. I hope that's all right. Um, if you have additional questions or needs, please feel free to contact me. I'm giving you my office phone and my email address. So I hope you found the information helpful and that you will join me for the next Let's Get It Straight. Thank you. Bye-bye.